are listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life. Again, I told you that when I moved, you'd actually see me more after I moved than before. It's true. It's how my life operates. Uh, We are still working through this culture shock series. I, I have no time for niceties this morning. Are you ready? Excellent. If you're, not, if you're new here, I'm a guy who used to be around here all the time, president of Impact Campus Ministries, all kinds of that. Okay, got that out of the way. Excellent. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to, I want to share, uh, I was actually scheduled for two of the commandments this morning. I'm like, ah, I kind of want to like stray a little bit off the, because there's a, there's a rabbinical lesson about how the Jewish conversation views the Ten Commandments that I just cannot go through, be a part of a sermon series without sharing it on some level. It radically changed the way I interacted with the concept of love. And it's not going to be like some fringe radical idea you've never heard of before, but it is going to still be deeply profound if I can do this correctly. You need to know it's not my own. I definitely learned this from others. You could see a version of it uh, on alephbeta.org, which is... uh, Orthodox Jewish rabbi by the name of Rabbi David Foreman has really helped me understand the Torah from a Jewish perspective. Um, not a believer in Jesus. I'll let you know that up front. So I'm going to take his lesson. I'm going to put the Jesus into it. <laughs> I'm going to kind of repackage it, hopefully making it maybe a little bit easier to pallet in 30 minutes. And <laughs> we'll see. Are you guys ready? Excellent. Okay, so there is... When we, when we talk about culture shock, and when Josh came to me with this idea of this is a sermon series we're going to do, and why the Ten Commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments, for us, because on some level, we always feel like if I want to take God's word and try to distill it, try to synthesize it, try to get it down to its kind of its core elements, one of the places that you just knee-jerk reaction want to go is the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments really serve, and, and Jewish perspective would say that's not incorrect, the Ten Commandments are, they will call it often, like a table of contents to the Torah. And Now, if we really wanted to distill it, I think a lot of us would immediately say, well, I can distill the whole law down to like the whole Bible. Because for us, it's not even about the Hebrew scriptures. For us in the Jewish context, it's about the Gospels and the teaching of Jesus and the letters of Paul. And what about James and Hebrews and Peter? And what about Revelation? And all those things... Like, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, like 66 books worth. How do you distill that all down? Now, a lot of us immediately go, well, I know how to do that. It's about love. That's not incorrect. It is about love. Like Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment? Love love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, after Jesus, inspired word of God, will come along and say, I can do it even even shorter than that. Love your neighbor as as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on this one commandment. So it's not incorrect to say everything hinges on love. And yet when we jump to that, we often are seeing that conversation in a vacuum that is void of the larger Jewish conversation that Jesus and Paul are wading into when they utter those words. So I want to talk about that because 40 years before Jesus... 40 years, let me do this in a way, I always do this backwards because I'm left, right, and you guys are over there, so let me try to do this correctly. 40 years, this is your left, right? Yeah, okay. 40 years before Jesus, there's a rabbi by the name of Hillel. And as the story goes in Jewish tradition, somebody comes up to Hillel one day and says, 
Rabbi, I need you to tell me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Which is a Jewish way of, man, when I'm up here on the stage, it's not as easy as I thought. Which is a Jewish way of saying, distill it down to me really quickly. Ready? Go. Okay? And Hillel's response is, do not do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Don't do to others. It's the true rendering is, what is hateful to you, don't do to others. But a lot of times it'll get translated, what you don't want done to you, don't do to others. Now you might feel like, that sounds really similar to Jesus, but Jesus stated it in the positive. Like, do to others what you would want them to. So 40 years before Jesus, there's this conversation, Hillel, distill it all the way down. Whatever you don't want people to do to you, don't do to others. 40 years later, Jesus, do the same thing. Do unto others what you would have them do to you. Or in another place, love the Lord your God, love other people. 40 years later, Paul and another rabbi, like if you're, if you're a Jew who doesn't follow the New Testament, you still have the same conversation because there's another rabbi, one of Paul's contemporaries. His name is Akiva. Say Akiva. Akiva, 40 years after Jesus, says everything is about this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so Jesus and Paul are not in a vacuum. Jesus and Paul show up in a larger Jewish conversation where over the course of 100 years... There's this evolution of thought that, yes, ends up landing on love, but if you just race to the end of the conversation and land here, you miss the whole buildup, and I'm going to argue, and the rabbis are going to argue, you miss the foundation. Where did Hillel get, because that commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is in Leviticus. It's Leviticus 19. That's a verse. Is, is Hillel's statement, what is hateful to you, don't do to your brother, in the Bible? Say no. You're right. It's not. Good job. Yeah, that's not in the scriptures. So where did he get that from? Rabbis are going to say he got that from distilling the Ten Commandments on the spot. So let's go ahead and look at that. Now, before we dive in, I want to talk about how how does a Jew interact with the scriptures? The Jew interacts with the scriptures in an interesting way because there are 8,000 words in biblical Hebrew. Okay? 8,000 words in the language that your Old Testament is written in. To, com- to compare that, your modern English has over 400,000. So 8,000 compared to 400,000. What does that mean? That means in the biblical Hebrew, there is a whole lot of depth built into every single word because every single word is a piece of real estate that parchment, everything from the material you wrote on to the words you were using you had to pack so much, it had to be so dense. So the, the, the illustration that often gets used, by, especially rabbis that are from New, the New York area, is they'll talk about real estate in Manhattan, right? So you're, you're a billionaire and you show up in Manhattan and you want to you have this like 6,000 square foot home. And you tell your real estate agent, I want 6,000 square feet in Manhattan. I want it in a ranch house. Well you ain't going to find a ranch house in Manhattan with 6,000 square feet. But your real estate agent will tell you, what are they going to do? They're going to give it to you in some kind of high-rise building situation. I can give it to you vertically. I cannot give it to you horizontally. The rabbis always say, "This this is what Hebrew does in Torah. It's built vertically. And so when you view a passage of scripture in the Hebrew scriptures from a Jewish, from a Jewish mindset, you're looking for layers 
and all the layers talk to each other. This is why when we talk about Jewish stuff, everybody's always like, because it's not all sitting right in front of you. The one layer is sitting in front of you, and we have to learn how to ask questions that unlock the other layers. Are you following me so far? Good, because I don't want to lose you already. I want to talk about the three layers of the Ten Commandments. The three layers of the Ten Commandments. So the first layer of the Ten Commandments is what's most obvious. The Ten, the ten Commandments are written on what? On tablets, stone tablets. How many of them? Two of them. So when the Jews look at it, they're like, there are obviously two sets of commandments. Now we do this too, but we typically don't sit on it long enough. We just look at it and we go, it's about God and people. So it's about four and six. Four are about God. Six are about people. That's not necessarily incorrect, but the Jew says like, that cannot be it. I have, ten com- I have 10 commandments and two tablets. How many commandments have to be on each tablet? Not a trick question. Five. All right. So you have five commandments on the first tablet and five commandments on the second tablet. Now for them, they can't do God and people because commandment number five is not about God directly, is it? Like number one, I am the Lord, that's about God. Number two, no other gods, that's about God. Three, Lord's name, that's about God. Four, keep the Sabbath, eh, we'll, we'll count it. Five, father and mother, not directly about God. However, and Darby nailed this in his sermon, kind of in passing, he talked about it. These tablets are about vertical relationships and horizontal relationships. What are your parents? In essence, they are a kind of creator. They're not the creator. Please don't make me say that. But there is four commandments that have to do with your creator. And the fifth commandment has to do with your earthly creator. Horizontal relationships. I mean, think about that. You do not have the same relationship. This is not about hierarchy. Because you do not have the same kind of relationship with your boss at work that you do with your parents. Your boss is not a horizontal relationship. The Western world might want you to think so, but it's not. It is a horizontal relationship. But your parents have an unbelievably, unbelievably unique spot in that horizontal relationships and vertical relationships. I just said that backwards. Vertical relationships, horizontal relationships. But you guys know what I'm talking about, so it doesn't matter, Right? Okay, so this is layer number one. Still tracking with me? Okay, now, when you look at those two tablets, the Jewish mind says, okay, I have horizontal relationships, vertical relationships, I have two tablets, five commandments, sitting next to each other, the Jewish mind says, there has to be a correlation. We talk about chiasms a lot. Maybe it's a chiasm, maybe it's not. But there has to be a parallelism between left and right, five and five, they have to be talking to each other. There has to be a conversation going between each other. So that's layer number two. Layer number two is the way tablet one and tablet two are having a conversation. And when they looked at it, they said, really what you have is you have five meta-principles, you have five ideas that express, you might have 10 commandments, but you really have five ideas that express, that each idea expresses itself vertically and horizontally. So five ideas, but they have a vertical and a horizontal expression. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna walk through these and try to identify, and we did this years ago when we were back in Pullman and all that kind of stuff. So you could actually get a whole sermon series if you really go back in the archives and dig into this stuff, you could find it. We're just gonna do it in one sermon a day and save you all that time, wink. I'm finding it really challenging right now as I watch my countdown timer just continue to run slower. So you have all these interactions. Let's go with the first one. So one and six are going to go together. 
2 and 7, 3 and 8, 4 and 9, 5 and 10. They're going to be tied together by a meta principle. So we start with the first one. I am the Lord and no murder. And we talked about I am the Lord in the ver- when I was here last time, about a month ago. We talked about the very first commandment. It's about a recognition. It's about recognizing that God exists and the idea of murder. Now is I am the Lord and murder connected. On a textual level, we can make that very easily. The very first prohibition against murder comes in the story of Noah. And why is it exnade? Because they are made in the image of God. If you go back and read the whole story of Noah, Genesis 9, you're going to find the reason you can't murder is because they carry the image of God. So on some very real level, when you murder somebody else, you're actually murdering God. Like there's a correlation between these two, but let's try to pull it apart even more than that. When I am, <laughs> you know, like you do, when you're laying in bed at night thinking about murdering somebody. <laughs> but isn't this actually an interesting part of the conversation? Because how relevant are the Ten Commandments? Like, really, like, you, you kind of feel like I, I, I don't typically bump into a lot of these ideas all the time. Like, I'm not really sitting there at times going, oh, should I murder Bob or not murder Bob? <laughs> and... I mean, they're really, anyway, no, no. So when you, but imagine that you are laying in bed at night. Why does murder happen? Because on some level you have convinced yourself on a deeply disturbing psychological level that your life would be better without Bob in it. I hope there are no Bobs here that I know. Do not take it personally. Your life would be better if Bob wasn't in it. And so that, There's this, but you can't do that with God, can you? Or can you? What if you wanted to say, my life would be better without God in it? There is an an active, objective way of getting rid of somebody. It's called murder. But there's also a passive, subjective way of getting rid of somebody that you can't murder, and it's just ignoring. Which is what the first commandment was all about, right? Right? recognizing that God exists and that you have a relationship with this God. If I want to murder God, I just turn my back on him and act like he doesn't, like who? Who? And so this first principle between commandment one and commandment six is this meta principle. Don't do away with others. Recognize the place that others have in the world horizontally. Recognize God. And vertically, I'm having a real problem with this. Vertically with God, horizontally with other people. The meta principle, don't do away with others. What about the next two? What about no other gods? And no, this might be the easiest one to see. No other gods, idolatry and adultery. Not only do the words sound similar, you, cannot, you, can, also, you can see this parallel probably the cleanest out of the whole set. Idolatry and adultery. There are sacred relationships. The word to adulterate literally means to mix in. So there's a sacred relationship between two parties and a, and a third party gets mixed in to this sacred, sanctified relationship that's supposed to be between one, two, you get an, a third mixed into it. So let's see if I can get this right this time. Vertically, that looks like idolatry, adding something into that sacred vertical relationship. Horizontally, in marriage, it's mixing in 
a third party into a horizontal sacred relationship between two parties. What's the meta principle? Don't betray relationships. Don't betray sacred relationships. That's the, that's the second meta principle. What about the next one? What about the Lord's name and no stealing? Well, to take God's name in vain, the Hebrew literally means, it's a weird word. It literally means to take up, to lift up, to carry off, is what the Hebrew word actually means in that phrase. Do not carry off God's name in vain. Do not lift up, do not carry God's name in vain. It almost makes it, like when you read it in the Hebrew, it's not what you would expect grammatically. It really makes you feel like God's name is like this thing, like a big sign that you can just kind of walk in and pick up and carry off. Do not carry off God's name in vain. What's interesting about the Hebrew word of do not steal is that's not literally what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew literally says do not kidnap. Like the, pro, the direct Hebrew prohibition is against kidnapping. Do not take away, pick up and carry off somebody's personhood. Now the rabbis don't literally make, think it means kidnap. They think it means do not steal. But they, they make observations about why the Hebrew, the grammar of the Hebrew is so odd in this parallel. Has anybody ever, I'm not going to make you tell the story. Has anybody ever been burglarized or had somebody break into your car or your home? It's an interesting experience. I just had friends had their cars, just somebody got into their cars in their driveway, didn't do anything. For, and yet, didn't take anything because they didn't have any cash. And yet, how do you think they describe that experience? What's the word you think they used? Violated. Everybody just said it in unison. Because if anybody's ever broken into your house or your car, there's something. Now, violation, that's words that we use when we're all like personal, like our personhood has been attacked. And yet our possessions, the Hebrew idea says, has a direct connection to our personhood. We like to think that it's our body. Our body owns a car. Our body owns stuff. Our body has cash. But that's actually not how we actually view it. And the reason I can prove that is because we say our body. Our, my body is not truly you. It's a part of you. There's a greater, the Hebrew would talk about your soul, your nefesh. Your, your personhood has a body. Your personhood has possessions. Your personhood, and so when somebody comes in and takes your stuff, it's a violation of your personhood. It's like somebody has kidnapped a piece of you. It's like somebody, and somebody out there has your bike. Somebody out there is appropriating your identity. Well, well what, what is it when you're misusing when we interpret that passage correctly, and I think Josh did a great job that morning, when we talk about taking God's name in vain, what did Josh talk a lot about? God's reputation, our representation of God. Don't appropriate God's identity in your actions. Does that make sense? Do you see how these parallels are working? Have I lost everybody at this point? Okay, I'm gonna say the no as I haven't lost everybody and it is making sense. All right, we're gonna keep going because I don't have another plan to get out of this. Okay. That third meta principle is don't violate the personhood of others in a reference to possessions. All right? Now about the next one. Keep the Sabbath and no false witness. Whoa, what is that one going to be? What's the parallel drawing? And false witness 
is, I like the term false witness because it does refer to a court situation. This is not just about lying, like a general prohibition against lying, although I think that fits. The actual Hebrew reference is, do not stand in court and give a false testimony. Well, in Jewish mind, Sabbath is literally, in Jewish tradition and all Jewish teaching, Sabbath is a testimony. Sabbath is about storytelling. Sabbath is about telling yourself and the world around you who God is and what's most true about the world. Sabbath is about truth-telling. So that's your vertical relationship. What's the horizontal relationship? Don't bear false testimony. Don't stand in court and say that somebody did something that's not true. Tell the truth about others Tell the truth about God. So what is the meta principle here? Safeguard the truth. Safeguard the truth. Whether it's about vertical relationships or horizontal relationships, make sure you're safeguarding the truth. Now, probably the hardest parallel of the whole list, honor your father and mother and no coveting. Good luck with that one, Marty, right? Well, good news, the rabbi did it for me. Okay, wonderful. Honor your father and mother and no coveting. Let's work with the one that we're probably a little bit easier to relate to, especially in our culture, (laughs) coveting, right? Have you ever noticed the commandment about coveting is really like, it's really obsessive. Like you shouldn't covet your neighbor's life or his wife or his maidservant or his manservant or his donkey or his ox. And you're like, oh my goodness, I get it, don't covet. And yet the rabbis say that there is something that the commandment is trying to teach us about the obsessive nature of coveting. Let's go back to Bob. You didn't murder him. Good job. Now you want want his life. I don't know how you got there, but now you want his life. And you're coveting all of Bob's things, right? And and you're just fixated. The the lesson that I heard was, was about his big screen television. Bob has a big screen television, and you want this big screen television. You've been bugging Bob. Bob, give me your television. No, stop asking. Leave me alone. So you go to a therapist, because this is like really bothering you. And you're sitting down with the therapist, and you're kind of trying to go through this, like, I want Bob's. And, And the therapist is like, listen, you're spending like $150 an hour on therapy. How about we just go down to the store, I'll buy you the television, and then you can, we can just be done with it and you can save money on all your future therapy. Now, you might take up your therapist on the free TV, <laughs> but you know deep down that's not the issue, right? Like you know that deep down, the issue isn't about possessing the TV. The issue is that you, because when you get to TV, you're just gonna want Bob's car and you're just gonna want Bob's job and you're just gonna want, because what the issue really is is that you want to climb out of this miserable experience that you call your life and be Bob. You're convinced that if you could just be Bob, your life would be different. That's what coveting is ultimately about. Well, this is the principle that lies at the heart. Again, I think Josh nailed it when he talked about this in the series this is the principle that lies at heart of honoring your father and your mother. Because just as, as, as Josh said, honoring your father and mother doesn't mean that they treated you well. They may have been horribly abusive. Honoring your father and mother doesn't mean that you agree with everything that they say. Honoring your father and mother doesn't. But what does honoring your father and mother do? It honors the fact that they did give you something that you have to be unbelievably grateful for. They gave you you. 
and your life, your identity is something that ought to be celebrated. They may have failed in every moment after that, but you are in the world because of your parents. And if nothing else, you honor, honoring your father and mother is actually not about your father and mother in the rabbinical mind. Honoring your father and mother is actually about honoring yourself. It's about not abrogating. So here's the meta principle. Don't abrogate yourself. Do not do away with yourself. Don't do away with yourself. That's what honoring your father and mother is about. That's what coveting is about. Be satisfied with you. Be satisfied with the life that you have. That's your meta principle there. So now let's talk layer number three. First layer was two tablets. Second layer was two tablets talking to each other with meta principles. Third layer, you guys, is your brain popping yet? Third layer is about how the meta principles talk to themselves. <laughs> that's so awesome. I, nobody cares, but that's cool. Okay. So the third layer is about how all these meta, because look at this. Your meta principles, it begins with don't do away with others, and it ends with don't do away with yourself. It starts with, But then when you look at it, like the first four of the five meta principles are all about others, and the last one is about yourself. And the rabbi said, did you actually notice that all of these meta principles about others actually go in order, like they're concentric circles? First of all, don't do away with the self, like the physical self. And this is all about violation. Don't violate others. Don't violate persons, like the actual self. Then don't violate that person's sacred relationships. What's the, ne- what's the next circle? Don't violate people's possessions. What's the next circle? Don't violate people's reputation. Do you see how it starts with like the innermost physical self and then just keeps moving in concentric circles? Don't violate others. Don't violate their physical self, their sacred relationships, their possessions, their reputation. And if you really start to understand this and believe this, where does it ultimately lead? Listen, I can't violate, I can't violate, I can't violate, I can't violate because they have an image of godness about them. If that's true about them, it might just be true about me. If I can't violate others, I can't violate others, I can't violate others, I can't violate others, maybe... I shouldn't be violated either. Now, when you look at those, that conversation, what is the one word that sums that up? Don't say love, because I don't think that's it, if you're really being honest. That is not described love. This is almost restrictive. This is almost about what you don't do. This almost sounds like who? Hillel. This almost sounds like the first conversation. It leads to love, but the word here is not about love. What's the word here? I'm going to argue the word here is respect. What the Ten Commandments were trying to give us the foundation of was respect. Respect is not love. Like, you can respect others without loving them. Everybody tracking with me on that? But here's the other flip side of that. You cannot truly love others without respecting them. And I think that's where we get ourselves in loads of trouble. If you try to shortcut and get away from respect, how many times have we said this, even myself? I love them, I just don't like them. And sometimes that means one thing, and sometimes it means I just don't respect them. Now, I'm not using respect in like our Western American sense where like to respect them means like I really 
love who they are and honor what they do. And I look up to them. And I, I'm, I'm talking about a human dignity. I'm talking about a recognition of their humanity, that respect. If, if you try to cut the corner and get to love without building it on the foundation of respect, you don't get love. You get what we're going to call love's imposter. There is true love, and then there's love's imposter. Let's talk about vertical relationships. What does it look like to love God but not respect him? It looks like idolatry. Even if, it's, even if it's the right God, even if it's the God of the Bible, but you don't respect him, you just love him, that's idolatry. Because what is it? Well, I'm loving God just to get something out of him. What about horizontal relationships? What does it mean to have a, 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 a marriage that's built on love but not respect? It looks like abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. It looks like, it looks like I just have this relationship so I can have a trophy wife, so that I can have a husband that just does what I want, so I can have whatever, like, it's what I can get out of it. What about a business relationship that's built on love? I know it's a weird word to use in our world, but it's built on love but not respect. Well, I just have this partnership so I can get something out of you. What about a friendship that's built on love, love's imposter, but not respect? Well, I have a relationship that I, it's always about what I get out of you because if I don't have respect, what I end up having is this is about me because I'm the only thing that matters in the world. It's just about me. So respect the rabbis, the rabbi that taught me this. Respect is about a horizontal or a vertical relationship that is built upon two eyes. Two eyes. There's an eye and an eye. This person is an eye, and this person over here is an eye. And a, a true love is built on, on respect, and respect always manages to see the two eyes. It preserves, it preserves the identity of both parties. Love's imposter builds a relationship out of two eyes, but it makes it an us, not a we. And I know this really well from how God's uh, led me to anybody that was at CR when I shared my testimony. You got to hear a detailed story of this. My narcissism in my marriage. I loved my wife. I did not respect her. And it was a, luckily not a physical abuse, but it was an emotionally abusive relationship in my marriage. Because I, any shred of independence that my wife has was a threat to the us. Why do you need to have hobbies? Why do you need to have relationships? Why do you need to have money? It's our money. Why do you need to have relationships? They're our relationships. And so in the, under the guise of love, but lacking in respect, I used love to crush and dominate the identity because I just made it an us. Is that making sense? But, uh, but love built on respect recognizes that there's another, it's two eyes that come together to form a we, we together. And so there's a we-ness, there's a preservation of the, there's a care for, there's a respect for the other person in the, and we could, 
Like, what is it about a business partnership? If it's built on true love and not love's imposter, there's a respect for what you bring rather than me trying to crush you and do away with your identity. What about joining a, well, we're in a college town. What about a fraternity? If, there's tr- if, tr- if a fraternity is built on true love, <laughs> then there would, be this, there would be this respect of all the eyes. And there, there can be that. I'm not knocking fraternities in Greek life. But, there's, but if there's a hazing, because I need to destroy and humiliate your identity so I can make you just like one of us. There's, there's, that's love's imposter. It, it shows up under the guise of love and care, but it actually is doing away with, it's crushing. We, I think, one of the things we need, when we talk about culture shock in our world, one of the things that I think we need to work so hard to bring with us is respect not just love, because we do it all the time in the Christian world. We talk about loving the outsiders, and what we're really just talking about is getting them on our team. We don't actually respect the outsider. We don't want them to, we actually don't want them to preserve their identity. We want them to lose their identity so they can just get assimilated into the us. When you talk about loving your enemies, Again, I don't mean respect in the sense of, well, I look up to my enemies. I admire them. I'm not talking about that kind of respect. I'm talking about my enemies are human beings. They have a humanity. They carry the image of God. As distorted as it may be in our minds, they carry the image of God. And so whatever I do, however my interaction is with them, I have to stand upon a foundation of some level of respect or it's not really love. It's a selfish imposter that carries love on the surface as its label. So when you think about, and, and, and there's all kinds of depth here, and this was not like a moment where I get to resolve this. I get, I'm hoping to give you a whole lot of stuff to take with you this week, to talk about on your life groups, to think about over lunch, to talk about on the car ride home, to look at in your marriages. Hopefully not in an accusatory way. Please, 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 please. In a self-reflective way. I want to respect you. To think about your business partnerships. To, is there a respect or is it, do we talk about love because we're Christians and Jesus told us to love and so I love, but really... We're taking Jesus's teaching out of the, into a vacuum, out of its historical context, and what we're really doing isn't love at all. So I want to invite you to take your supplies for communion this morning. Because I can't think of anything that was more true love. Like, just think about what God did when we, when we think, when we reflect on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Like, what, is that, is that God just like getting his way, just kind of like, like the ultimate act of selfless love is almost incomprehensible in its level of it almost feels weird to talk about God respecting us, right? But that's who God is. That's God's, this loving relationship where God keeps talking about 
I'm your lover and you're my bride. There is a respect. Like God has enough respect for humanity. That's, yes, that's who you are. That's how I made you. Of course he's not going to do away with my identity, which is what I, I hate so much about Christian theology. It's like, well, Jesus just covers us up. So when God sees us, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. Whoa, that is so disturbingly wrong. God doesn't look at us and see Jesus. God looks at us and he sees us. And that's why this, that's why bread and juice, that's why death on a cross. Because when God looked at us, he says, I love you. I love you. I'm not getting a whole bunch of Jesuses into heaven. I'm wanting to save and redeem you so that you can walk in the fullness of who I made you to be so that we can have a relationship that's built on we, not on us. Like what a beautiful representation. This could be our model. Dying to ourselves, I talked about last month. To die to ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Here we go. That respect would look like self-sacrificial love built on respect. That night, Jesus, all kinds of things happened to Jesus, and yet he stood his ground in this moment. He took a piece of bread during that night, and he, he broke it. He passed it amongst his disciples. He told them to take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember and consider Jesus. And later in that meal, Jesus took a cup, and he passed it amongst his disciples, and uh, he said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember and consider Jesus. Father God, I, um, I know how selfish that I can be. I know how hard it is to respect others. Somehow, over the course of 2,000 years, what used to be the more difficult thing to do, love, where it was easier to respect and, and a more difficult call to love, somehow 2,000 years later, we have repackaged it so many times that we, I, I, God, I, I think that I can love and not respect. And, and this year, I mean, we're already... We're already crushed by so many things, worries or frustrations and everything from COVID and masks to uh, the economy and politics and election year. God, we are going to be tested and tried on how much we respect, like the, the basis of respect and, and the temptation is going to be to cover over it with, a, with love's imposter. God, I, I pray against that in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would dig down deeper and start building a foundation of respect before we claim that what we are a part of is love. So God, teach us. Teach us how to be grounded and rooted and, and just, seeing other, just seeing other people, not doing away with them, not passively, not objectively, seeing them, recognizing their place, in this world, whether they're fellow brothers and sisters in Christ or, or, or non-believers or just whatever, God, all the people we meet remind us they carry a little piece of the divine image.
and help us to respect them and love them from that place. I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.